It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 2nd, 2020, the Maybe It Is Infrastructure Week edition. I am David Plotz. I'm in, today, I'm in my basement. Joining me from somewhere in their houses, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. How are you? I'm fine. I'm a little worried about the streak on your basement ceiling. Let's discuss that later. Yes. You know what it is? It's the dishwasher leaking and it and uh, causing some water damage there. I'm 99% sure. Excellent. But thank you for noting that. <laughs> You're welcome. It, water damage makes me incredibly anxious. I'm not an anxious person, but that's what makes me anxious is water damage. So I'm thanks for you. stressing me out. Well, if I can just chi- if I can just chime in, remember our conversation about how you so accurately, poignantly, and unforgettably referred to water leakage as, as like having a spy in your house that yes. you don't know about. It, it's always struck me as the most apt metaphor for water leakage and damage, which I have a similar feeling about, and also have lots of water leakage from uh, our dishwasher. That is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes joining from Manhattan. Hello, John. How are you guys doing? Are you? Both? Hello, David. Uh, yes. Okay. We're doing. We're doing all right. It's we're into our third week now of uh, because we had people who tested positive at 60 Minutes, so uh, we've been we've been. Uh, social dis- distancing and, and shutting ourselves off for about three weeks. So it's uh, we're into our third week and um, we're all, everybody's kind of hanging in. Emily, Hunkered down, similarly, yes. All right, on today's GabFest, what is the best way to shorten and minimize the economic c- catastrophe that COVID-19 is causing? We will talk to Jason Furman, who ran President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors about the best ways to do that. Then, can we have an election in the middle of the pandemic? Why not? Why can we have conventions? We, we got to be able to do it. And then Geraldine Brooks wrote Year of Wonders, one of the great novels about plague. She will bring some deep novelistic wisdom and perspective about what it's like to live through a plague. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. As we are taping on Thursday morning, the new Jobless numbers have come out. There were 6.6 million new claims for unemployment, which doubled last week's record, which was itself, I think, seven times greater than any previous week in history. The nation is obviously in the midst of an enormous economic crisis caused by COVID-19. We are very happy to be joined by Jason Furman. Jason was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. He's now a professor at Harvard. Welcome, Jason. I'm going to start with a sort of sideways question. You're teaching Ec 10, which is a course I took in college, which is the basic economics course at Harvard. What is the most important concept from the current crisis that is going to go into an introductory economics curriculum? Yeah. Well, first of all, we're putting the crisis into our course right now as we talk about monetary policy, as we talk about fiscal policy, we're discussing how it applies um, to the current situation. In terms of what new is going to come out of it, 
in some ways, I think the last crisis did prepare us for this a little bit. We know that we want to err on the side of doing too much, not too little. We know that fiscal policy is really important and really effective. The Fed invented a lot of new programs in the last crisis. They're using all of those same programs now. They're just doing more of all of them. But you know, what will be brand new is can we figure out, is there a way to put an economy into a medically induced coma and then wake it up and have it start jogging around again? Um, that's something we've, we've never seen happen before. And you know, we're seeing a lot of different experiments in different countries about how to do that. And what do you think about the U.S. approach of having these just enormous sets of unemployment claims? I mean, in Europe, there has been more of an effort in some countries to freeze employment in place by covering the wages of businesses and covering even the expense of businesses. Here, we're seeing just this hemorrhaging of people and separating them from their jobs. And there have been some economists who say this is really a terrible idea because you're severing these connections. On the other hand, I suppose there's an argument for the market shaking itself up because some of these businesses will come back and others won't. And if the government kept paying people's wages, it would kind of freeze them in place. Um, and I just wonder what you think about those two sides, if I've gotten that right. Yeah. So the, the fundamental thing that you know, one needs to be worried about is when we saw the large increase in unemployment rates in 2008 and nine, I looked at the data from a lot of countries for many decades and found no country had ever on a sustained basis lowered its unemployment rate by more than seven-tenths of a percentage point per year. So the unemployment rate goes up seven percentage points, which might be a good case here. That would take 10 years um, to work that off. And the question is, can you figure out a much, much better way than waiting 10 years for the economy to recover from what it's going through um, right now? In Europe, you're paying businesses to keep people on. We don't have data yet to know if the businesses are actually doing that. My worry in the United States is we wouldn't be able to reimburse those businesses for another two months or so. So you'd be telling the hardest hit businesses, keep paying your employees and don't worry, we're going to pay you back two months from now. The unemployment insurance system, as creaky as it is, we do know that works. We do know people will get checks. Some of them will get checks even larger than what they were getting before, a little bit of a bug in the system. Um, and importantly, under the unemployment insurance reform, you can furlough workers and they can still get their unemployment insurance. So Macy's can tell people, you know, we don't need you right now. We're not going to pay you right now. Collect unemployment insurance. Two months from now, Macy's could reactivate those employees and start paying them. So, you know, we have some things in place that will do this. I'm worried about what our ability would have been to try to do any more. So, Jason, I just want to put a finer point on that, which is that you're, so your argument is there are a lot of people who are saying you should protect unemployment. And what it sounds like you're saying is that might be working f in other countries, but we lack the structure for it and that actually we could do more harm than good using that approach as opposed to the slow and, and unfortunate, but nevertheless, perhaps more effective unemployment system we have now. Yeah, I don't I don't have a hundred percent conviction on this, just to be clear. But yes, we don't have a lot of institutional structures in place. I have a friend in France and her nanny isn't working now. And she got a letter from the government, keep paying your nanny, we'll keep paying you. 
and it used exactly the same paid leave system that they already had in France. They didn't have to invent something new. They just had to take something that was there and extend it to this novel circumstance. Inventing brand new things in a time of crisis um, can sometimes take months. And in effect, you would be during those months telling businesses, the hardest hit businesses, to make a loan to the federal government for social insurance. So rather than the government paying unemployment, you tell a business to pay it. And then you'd repay the business three months from now. So it would be like businesses lending the government money. And in some ways, that's the exact opposite of where we want to be um, right now. So we've just done this $2.2 trillion massive spending package. That money, where is that money coming from? Is it coming from the future? How is it we're able to spend that money? And who is buying the bonds that is, are allowing us to spend that money? And and where is it borrowing from? I mean, there's, this, there's two distinct questions there. One is the financial one, which is the government's going to be borrowing $2.2 trillion. In fact, they're going to be borrowing even more than that, because tax revenue is falling a lot and just the normal spending is continuing. Um, a lot of that borrowing is um, the Federal Reserve is buying more treasuries. Um, central banks around the world are accumulating more treasuries. So a lot of that is from the official sector. And by the official sector, I mean government, central banks, sovereign wealth funds, um, and other entities like that around the world. Um, some of it is people who stole their stocks. They were nervous. They want something safe. They're in a money market fund, and then the money market fund um, buys treasuries. So the financing side of it, I don't think we need to worry very much about. And the evidence we don't need to worry is that interest rates um, remain quite low. That's a measure that that debt is being absorbed. There's a then more confusing thing, which is a lot of households are going to maintain their purchasing power, either because they're still paid by their employer because they're getting these unemployment insurance checks, because they're getting a couple thousand dollars per family in the, in the checks. But lots of stuff is not being produced right now. And so you have potentially this sort of large amount of money chasing a smaller amount of stuff. Some people think that could lead to inflation. I think probably not. But you know, in 2010, when some conservative economists were going on about inflation, they were obviously completely insane, and one could just out of hand dismiss them. Um, this time, with you know, when you maintain a household's purchasing power, but there's nothing to buy, um, no one quite knows what's going to happen in the real economy. I just have a very basic question: When are, is the economy coming back? How long is this and deep is this trough going to be? And what do we, how do we interact with the rest of the world? I was going to say, what do we owe the rest of the world? Like if our debt is easier for the world to absorb, if our treasury bonds are being purchased, does the United States have a kind of unique role in trying to prop up or restore the whole world's economy? Yeah. I worry a lot about what's happening in countries that are poorer than the United States. They're going to be hard hit by this virus. They have much less ability to borrow. Um, than we do. The United States has historically played a really critical role when there are international financial crises, like the Asian crisis in um, the 1990s. This time, you know, we're really looking inward and so worried about ourselves, it's hard to think about others at a time like this. I talked to a political leader of a very liberal country who said, 
I couldn't get my country to pay attention right now to you know poorer countries. But if we don't, this will ha- be not just a COVID crisis, it'll be an international financial crisis on top of that, and that'll come back and rebound um, to us. So you know, the good news is the IMF does have more resources than it used to have. We increased that a lot in the last crisis. It still has those, but um, we're going to have to look outward to help other countries um, at some point in this. Jason, in this crisis, there have become a lot of people who become armchair um, epidemiologists. And so there are a lot of armchair economists out there. What do you think is either the most dangerous way of old thinking that is um, possibly going to keep us from doing the right thing next? Or alternatively, is there a new thing that we learned from the last crisis that we should keep our eye on as we all consume whatever policymakers decide to do in this stage we're in? I mean, I'm encouraged about how much old economic thinking was discarded so quickly. I don't hear anyone raising concerns about the deficit. I heard, you know, three weeks ago, people talking about their brilliant supply side ideas to get the economy going. And they stopped talking about those brilliant supply side ideas about two weeks and six days ago. Um, It's not like workers need a tax cut to motivate them um, to work right now. So I've actually, frankly, been encouraged about how people are leaving aside some of what they normally want. I think it's going to get trickier, though, as time goes on. I mean, that's what we see is that you get fatigued with the types of policy responses you need. In the last financial crisis, we did extended emergency unemployment insurance when the unemployment rate rose to five. When it was still above 8%, we got rid of that. Because people were like, we've had it for years, we're tired of it, we're sick of it. So I'm you know, worried that the old thinking will come back. People will start worrying about deficits, start worrying about inflation, start worrying about the Fed's balance sheet, start worrying about, you know, have their little pet theories of supply side economics and whatever else. Um, but I, so far, we, we haven't seen that. But I'm sure it's coming back. Jason, so the running joke, of course, of the Trump administration is that it's always infrastructure week. And there is this notion that maybe now it is infrastructure week, that maybe the next, that the, the fourth rescue bill is, could be an infrastructure bill, at least certainly some Democrats want it, the President Trump seems to want it. What's the case for or against that? And why? what would we do if we did do that? Infrastructure is, first of all, perfectly good, even absent this crisis. It will probably be even more needed in 2021 and 2022 because of the high unemployment rate we're likely to still have because of this crisis. Uh, But I don't think it's the number one most pressing issue. So if Congress can walk and chew gum at the same time, I would say, you know, tell the Transportation Committee, you put together an infrastructure bill. Leadership is going to focus on the immediate things that matter for 2020, not for 2021, not for 2022. And then you pass both of them. Um, If they did that, I think it would be great. If the infrastructure bill ended up crowding out things like aid to states, expanding coverage for health care, expanding nutritional assistance for households that are hard hit, continuing to extend and expand on some of the things like unemployment insurance and checks, all of that is the most urgent. I think you can do both. Um, But I do sometimes worry that infrastructure might crowd out on that other stuff because infrastructure really is that next year um, and the year after. It's not about this year. Jason, if we're going to do infrastructure, should we be thinking about 
climate change, the Green New Deal, some of the elements of changing American infrastructure so that it's forward thinking as well as restoring highways and bridges? I certainly think ideally we would. And, you know, just even things in our infrastructure as simple as we've historically prioritized highways over transit because of the power uh, disproportionate due to our electoral system that rural areas have um, over urban areas. So there's all sorts of things I'd love to see in there. I don't want to wave the white flag of surrender uh, right on your, your, your podcast here, but I think I will. Um, which is if we can't get a consensus on some of the more controversial longer term issues you know, to at least get the shorter term right, um, I think would still be well worth doing. Jason, I'm going to use uh, host privilege to ask one final question, actually, which is you worked in the Obama administration. How do you think their project management approach to this would have been different than what we've seen out of the Trump administration? Um, in terms of the implementation, Vice President Biden did a really outstanding job um, with the Recovery Act, pretty broadly praised. I remember Daryl Issa did a press release about how it was a model for the way government should oversee spending. Um, he was making sure there wasn't fraud, making sure the money was getting out, um, making sure it was used well, and staying completely on top of that. Um, I don't know enough to know whether or not that's happening um, in this administration. The good news is the most complex part of the legislation that just passed is about funding the Fed and funding Fed's programs. And the Fed is the most competent part of the government. So that part, you know, I feel a little bit better about um, the rest of it. You know, who knows? Jason Furman is a professor at Harvard and the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. Thanks, Jason. Stay healthy. Talk to you soon. Stay healthy. See ya. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Today, we're going to talk about some of our pandemic life hacks, how to get through this uh, sane and and maybe with even some joy or some creativity. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to hear that discussion and get so much other great stuff from Slate. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. As we tape, Wisconsin is still planning to hold its primary elections on Tuesday, April 7th, even though hundreds of polling stations won't even have poll workers. Turnout will be incredibly low. They haven't figured out a working vote-by-mail method. Joe Biden on Wednesday proposed delaying the Democratic Convention, currently scheduled for the middle of July to August, which seems like, yeah, basic hygiene there. The Republican Convention, scheduled for August, remains on the docket. The November election for President and Congress, remember, will take place. But we're faced with a whole bunch of really complicated and new questions for us. How can campaigning happen? How can the election happen? So, Emily, we have never postponed or canceled a presidential election. The 1918 election took place in the middle of the Spanish flu pandemic, and there was, I think, very low turnout, but it it took place all the same. How are we going to have an election if we're in the middle of of COVID-19 or the kind of continued social distancing or a fall resurgence of it? Let's just first take care of the legal question here. The reason the uh, presidential and congressional elections happen on the first Tuesday of November is a statute that Congress passed in the 1840s. It would take both houses of Congress and the president to change the date. It is also written in the Constitution that the president and the new Congress need to be inaugurated in January. So the fear about postponing the election, I think you can put very low on your list how to do it in a way where people are enfranchised has a lot to do with increasing access to vote by mail and with money, because it is going to take a a heavy lift from state election officials who run all the elections in the country. This is a state and locally run affair. That's how we do American elections. And they are going to have to make some real changes. They're going to have to really increase access to vote by mail, and we can talk about the details, they're also not going to be able to shut down all the polling places because there are people who don't have addresses where they can be properly mailed a ballot. So the polling places are going to need to be safe, and there needs to be a lot of planning now. Even if we are lucky and the virus is gone in November, we need to imagine that it might be with us and plan for that scenario. Emily, is this one of these situations where it has to be state by state. There is no federal mandate for how this is conducted because elections are state affairs. So each state can do its own method, yes? Either. So Congress could pass a national law telling the states to increase access to vote by mail. The federal government, Congress has the power to administer elections in the Constitution. And when you think about the Help America Vote Act or even the Voting Rights Act, those are federal laws that affect how elections take place. A legal scholar at Florida State named Michael Morley was arguing to me this week that actually the states don't need federal directive to make voting by mail universally available. So there are a bunch of states, I think the count is like 17, where you have to have an excuse currently to get an absentee ballot. And there are even states like Connecticut where to change that requires a constitutional, a state constitutional amendment. However, Michael was arguing to me that given the emergency situation, 
any governor or secretary of state, depending on where the power resides in the state, state officials could say this time COVID is the excuse and everybody as a result can get um, an absentee ballot, can can vote by mail. And that made me feel better because it seems like a problem that the states could take care of if Congress does not. John, voting has become this partisan issue in the sense that reducing voter turnout has become an almost explicit and sometimes occasionally explicit goal of certain Republicans. I presume they will block vote by mail efforts where they can. They've not been keen about it in most places. How and would slow other creative solutions to this because their interest is lower turnout, their their electoral interest is lower turnout. How do you think that could play out? Do you think there's any chance the crisis breaks that pattern? Well, um, just to your point, the, uh, President Trump essentially said if we did what the Democrats wanted in terms of voter access, everybody would be allowed to vote and we'd and we'd lose. I'm paraphrasing him, but but I'm not I don't think I'm off by much. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you're not. Yeah. So uh, it was the saying the quiet part out loud this week. Right. From President Trump on that score. Right. So. um so uh, just to affirm your point, I guess my feeling, I have two thoughts. One is uh, not an answer to your question, but the first thing I was thinking about is when they were talking about cybersecurity and the elections um, uh, a few months ago, I talked to a person who was in charge of trying to harden the individual states to make sure that they would be resistant to Russian hacking efforts. And essentially they said, basically, we're, we're our list of priorities, we can't do all 50 states and we don't even really need to do 50 states because really the states that are most dire are the battleground states, the ones, the states where where the election will be up for grabs more than in, say, you know, a state like Mississippi or um, Massachusetts. Now, that's not great. You'd like to have all 50, but time limited, attention limited, you have to make a priorities list. So that got me thinking about battleground states. And then to your question, David, if this becomes a state by state knife fight, we got to watch the battleground states. One that's particularly in my mind is Florida. If you look at Governor DeSantis's um, foot dragging and um, uh, lack of responsiveness to the health crisis in Florida, um, which now puts Florida at a severe disadvantage. And it is now listed as one of the states that officials are thinking about in terms of the maximum hospital efforts of the kind that we're seeing in New York, where they're building field hospitals and that kind of thing. If that was the response to a serious health crisis, you could imagine the same kind of uh, uh, slowness with respect to hardening the election or improving the election process since he's a, an acolyte of President Trump. So that would be the, one of the places I would look. And then I would look, you know, I mean, Colorado, for example, is a battleground state, but has a really good, they make it very easy to to um, vote. And so I would go back down the list of the states that are battleground, but where it's hard to vote. Um Wisconsin is a little isn't so bad, but then you get into North Carolina is not great, and then Pennsylvania, Florida, they're not so good. Then the question is, where does Georgia and Arizona fit? Are those battleground states? They're not so good either, and then Michigan's not so great. So, uh, what I wonder is, a, if that's a logical way of making the priorities list, and then b. Can all the states that are worried about this go to somebody like Oregon and Colorado, which are two of the best states for being uh, able? I think in Oregon, you can the whole if you're registered, you automatically get a ballot. Can other states call Oregon and say, "Hey, give us your system. Can we copy it? And is that possible? Does it require legislation, or even just uh, logistically, is that possible?" 
Can I say one hopeful thing about this? You know, if the states don't increase access to voting, they're going to disenfranchise people on both sides of the aisle. It's such a basic idea that you should get to vote for president. I'm I'm just not sure the politics of that are going to play out in the same hardcore partisan manner as these questions always do. I mean, I just... It's possible they won't. And the second thing is that Nate Persley, who's been a guest on this show and is an election law expert at Stanford, he crunched some numbers last week that showed that Republicans are just as likely to use absentee ballots as Democrats. And I think that also might be helpful when you think about voting by mail. It's something that helps older people who have more trouble getting to the polls vote. It's It really shouldn't be a partisan issue. I, I, I just want to put one asterisk against everything you guys have said or, or just additive point, which is that it is not a presidential election. This is a general election. And if I were a challenger candidate in this environment for Congress, I would be so worried that I think the presidential election people will focus on, they will pay attention to, I think where we're going to have an enormous amount of voter ignorance and low turnout and probably a, a huge incumbent benefit that we're just going to start to see soon is in Congress, where people are going to probably vote for safety and familiarity rather than take a risk on somebody they're not going to know very well because there's going to be a much attenuated campaign season and the campaign is not going to be fought on the issues which the challengers want to fight it around. It's going to, the campaign's going to be around COVID and the economic catastrophe that resulted from it and how we're going to deal with it. And I think huh. that is almost certainly going to be a an incumbent uh, an incumbent reelection benefit. Am I wrong about that, John? Doesn't it depend so much, though, David, on how many deaths, what the economy is like? I mean, there could be a real throw the bums out push in this country if things are desperate. Well, also, it also depends on our tradition, our, our the the trajectory of of split ticket voting and whether it continues to be uh, non-existent um, in other. So so it will be really interesting to see if congressional voting is delinked from uh, presidential voting because um, it has the trend, of course, as we've talked about a billion times, has been to basically make those two the same. So it'll be interesting to see how how that sorts. But it is important with respect to ballot access in some of those states I was writing off because they're not battleground states. It would be really interesting, and somebody smart has probably already done this, is to look at the swingy, or I should say battleground districts in non-presidential battleground states. You could think of some in New Jersey and California that are settled and locked in the presidential, but have had switches in the congressional. Uh, that would be interesting laboratories to test the idea you're talking about. David, if you, Emily, were the Biden campaign, if you were Joe Biden or if you were Mike Bloomberg and had money to spend or if you were the DNC and needed to plan for the next few months, how, what are the productive things you think could be done politically in the next few months in the midst of the depth of the crisis that would potentially help you in November? Is there anything that they can do now that's going to benefit them? Maybe it's just stuff behind the scenes. And what would that be behind the scenes? Without emphasizing life online too much, so with that caveat, I was really struck by a piece in the New York Times this week by Jim Rutenberg and Matthew Rosenberg about how far behind the Democrats and Biden are in terms of their online 
war war strategy, whatever you want to call it. So first of all, there are the gazillion followers that President Trump and other Republicans have on Twitter and other social media. Biden's reach is tiny by comparison. Then there are the lengths that the Republicans have been willing to go to, for example, to just vacuum up people's cell phone numbers so they can get texting out in a way that uh, I think the Democrats have worried at some points raise privacy concerns. And then there's just the funding for an online ad strategy, especially on Facebook, which has not banned these ads and continues to allow micro-targeting, despite all the advice that this is really not healthy for our democracy. When you think about all of that, And you imagine an election in which the candidates have to get their message out more online because they just have fewer in-person opportunities. That seems important. I mean, how are political rallies going to operate if people are scared to go out? Like the big events seem to me the last thing that are going to safely come back. And that makes me think that, you know, the piece in The Times really did a good job of showing the internal fighting and strife, and some of it is President Obama's fault, probably, for having built up a separate organization outside the party, but it just seems like they are way behind. John, what do you think the Biden campaign or other parties can do, either explicitly, overtly, politically, or in in terms of infrastructure in the next few months? Yeah. Well, I think Emily's point about infrastructure uh, is is quite right. Um, because also, in addition, you know, the, the Trump campaign has been grabbing every name uh, and contact for every one of those rallies the president has has held. So, um, in a, they've taken advantage of, of the ability to contact people not just through the targeting methods of online research, which they've been working on for quite a while, but also through the just the in person. And of course, in person is always more um, beneficial. If somebody's willing to go out and go to a rally, you know they might be committed to jump over whatever hurdles are necessary to actually vote. Tactically, the Democrats do have some wherewithal in their in their just the general Democratic team, uh, even people who aren't party operatives, but just in Silicon Valley and other places to try to find creative online solutions to perhaps close that gap, especially while everybody is sitting at home in quarantine. Sitting at home in quarantine is not unlike what they do with a rally, which is once you get people to come into the door with a rally, you capture their information. You could imagine a situation in which people sitting at home on their computers all day long on Zoom conference calls are in a position to be captured in a way that they wouldn't be under normal circumstances. As a messaging question, it'll be interesting to see. um, I mean, the message for the president is obvious. He will run into the front of the parade and say, whenever we get out of this, he will claim credit for it. That's kind of obvious. As a messaging strategy for Democrats, it seems to me that the message is relatively simple, which is you're not just electing Joe Biden, you're electing a team that understands that this is what you do as a president. You face challenges. When facing challenges, you need to rely on experts. You need to rely on a government that acts in the collective good because you can't have a state-by-state response. You need to have people who have spent their lives working in this kind of atmosphere because crazy and unpredictable and dangerous things can happen and everybody can't learn on the job. It seems to me the messaging argument is America may have gotten through this, but if we get hit again, you want a set of people who 
recognize this is actually what the job is, not who are in constant tension with the actual job, which is to respond to big and difficult things. And then finally, from a value standpoint, you would say you want somebody in the job who has empathy for the whole country, not just empathy for red states over blue states, or who is installing people in positions who make emergency decisions, who will have your set of values in mind, not just the values of the person at the top of the ticket, but the people they hire who are making lots and lots of these lower level decisions that have real effects on people's lives. So that as a, as a messaging um, argument, it seems actually that it's a pretty clear kind of central case that plays more to the Democratic strength if you think the Democrats are associated with the party that believes in government and the role of government um, in terms of its just overall view in the population. Did you guys see the new Biden ad that it goes right for the empathy jugular, so to speak? It was um, it's like a minute and a half, maybe. And it's Biden saluting all the healthcare workers and first responders and talking about how this is America, kind of grabbing hold of that definition of patriotism. Anyway, it was I thought, John, exactly trying to make the case you just um, laid out. And I wonder about the impact of an ad strategy like that. I mean, if you're Joe Biden, you want the fight to be on the empathy front, because that's clearly a place where the president doesn't, you know, that's not in his strength. The second step for Biden in that case would be to make the case not just that empathy is a good thing and that's nice and we should all have it, but that empathy had a real cost here, which was that it it caused the administration and the president in particular to make decisions slowly to uh, devalue the human cost of this, overvalue the, the, the market cost, and that that had a real cost in lives. I get to introduce our third topic. I'm so excited because one of my very favorite novelists is joining us today. Geraldine Brooks is the author of many books. She is a prize winner. She is a former international correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. And we invited her today in particular because she has written a couple of books that speak to Times of Plague. People of the Book is one of those titles. And then in particular, her book Year of Wonders, which is about the response of one village in England to a pestilence, a very specific response. Um, so Geraldine, welcome to the Gab Fest. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us how you happened upon this story? I know there's an origin tale of how you found out about this village and its very distinct response to a plague, um, I think in the 1600s. Uh, yeah, so I was working um, flat out at the time as Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And as you know, the news in the Middle East is one damn thing after another. So I, it was very rare to be able to take any respite. But there was this uh, rare weekend when I uh, was able to be in England and I thought I just need to be in the opposite of hot and dry and intense. So my husband and I went rambling, as they call it. I love the word rambling. It sounds so much easier than hiking. Absolutely. <laughs> so we were rambling in uh, the Peak District, which is a beautiful and not particularly heavily visited area. I think people see that it's near the industrial cities of Manchester and so forth, but it is wild and gorgeous. Anyway, we were walking from one Ritstone village to another, and we saw a little finger post that had the name of the village, Eam, and underneath it had in parenthesis, Plague Village. And I thought, well, 
not many places try to attract visitors by putting up a sign saying Plague Village, but I was intrigued. So we walked there and in the parish church of St. Lawrence at the center of the village was an exhibition of the most extraordinary story of what had occurred there in 1665 when bubonic plague had been carried to London. Uh, they think on a bolt of cloth that an itinerant tailor had ordered and it spread through the village and the villagers came together and took a decision that as far as I've been able to research was unique in human history. When they found that plague was among them, they voluntarily quarantined themselves to avoid spreading the infection into surrounding communities. And this just took hold of my imagination. And it wasn't that I ran home and quit my job at the Wall Street Journal and went up to a garret and started writing a novel. I didn't do that. I went on doing my job, but it was banging around in my imagination. And 10 years later, I sat down to try and engage with it imaginatively. Uh, Geraldine, when you read accounts of how we are responding to our plague, what seems most similar in how we're responding and what seems most different? I think this is not just uh, about ep epidemics either. I think it's about how human beings respond in a time of crisis. And what I learned from covering wars and conflicts in the Middle East also holds for plague and um, an epidemic pandemic is that some people go to their best self and some people go to their worst self. Um, Around the time of the Eme outbreak of bubonic plague, London was behaving uh, very differently. In London, the first people who fled were the clergymen followed quickly by the doctors and basically then anyone who had the means to get out of town, which left the poorest and the least able to deal. And um, if you read Samuel Pepys's diary, he describes the horror of people being locked up in their homes with nobody to bring them food or water or help of any kind, locked up to die alone, locked up with their dead. And he says very memorably, I think, we are become as cruel as dogs one to another. I actually think it's a lot crueler than dogs in my experience of dogs, but there you go. One thing I was thinking about in returning to your book, which is really just a wonderful book and I recommend thoroughly, is the sacrifice the villagers make and the way in which they're, there's like a concentration of illness and anguish in this village that is supposed to be, that is presumably saving other people. And I was thinking about that in relation to what we're asking of healthcare workers right now and wondering what is fair to ask? I mean, certainly people who work in the healthcare field expect to put themselves at risk. They are accustomed to a treating infection. What is troubling me so much, and I'm sure this is true for lots of people, is the idea that we're asking that of them without the proper equipment and that we are um, expecting them to put themselves in harm's way without the usual expectation that they will be taken care of and protected. And I wonder when you think back to... Anna, your amazing main character, who is a caregiver herself, like how you think about that development now and that relationship. 
Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's absolutely scandalous what we're asking of healthcare workers. And, you know, not all of them are infectious disease specialists. So, yes, everybody gets a bit of basic training in this, but not the day after day after day at the coalface confrontation. You know, one of the last people I was able to have dinner with um, before it became impossible to do that was a young friend of mine who's a Kurdish um, woman uh, who was just finishing her final year of medical school. And of course, the medical students had all been mobilized and she was doing triage in a Paris hospital. And, you know, she she just took it um, as, you know, there's this sense of privilege of being able to serve. And I guess I wasn't surprised in her case because when she was a very young medical student, she went into northern Syria to help the Kurdish population and the Yazidis in the middle of the conflict there. So I think there is this forward-facing incredible, and this is this is the other side of it, you know, the good side of human nature, the people who are called upon to be, like, completely unselfish and who, who rise to that. And, um, and you see it, I think, not even just with healthcare workers. I heard a really moving um, report yesterday from a factory in rural Maine where they make the nasal swabs that are in such high demand because it's easier for the nurses to use them in the drive-thrus. They're on a long flexi stick or something like that. And they're running double shifts and everybody in that factory is feeling like they're doing their part and contributing and they're really proud to be able to help. So I think that, you know, that that's the better angels. And if we have the right leadership, we call on that instead of the divisiveness. And often if you put it to people another way, if you show them another way of seeing things, they respond to that because, you know, maybe I'm naive, but after all, my experience of seeing people go one way or the other, you know, the the um, the kid who can be turned into the vicious boy soldier, the, the, the perfectly normal guy who would have been an accountant if he hadn't come up under Saddam Hussein and been a torturer. There is a way of, I think, connecting with people's best self uh, if you have leadership. And we, I think we're seeing examples of extremely poor leadership uh, at the level of our president, the Australian Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and then we can see a kind of radiant leadership. Uh, you know, uh, Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand couldn't have responded more appropriately, quickly, and also with kindness and humanity. Geraldine, I wanted to ask you about the idea of home, which you wrote, I guess they started out as lectures and then wrote about. You've lived in, I think it was, was it 19? I don't know if it's up to 20 now, different places. Um, and you you had this wonderful, uh, what I loved was that many, many different versions of what home means, but we are now all stuck at home in a way. And I just wondered if you could reflect on that for a moment, the idea of home and the fact that we are all now in it. Yeah, no, it is funny how many different uh, definitions of home there are, you know, the place that you seek, the place that that is precious to you, but it, the root of the word is haunt, which I think is fascinating. Um, so, you know, home can be a haunting idea as well. And I'm sure plenty of people, you know, uh, are going slowly out of their minds in four walls, we're very, very lucky. We live in a rural place. It's very easy to walk out the door into nature 
and still be safe, not put anybody at risk. I can walk for, you know, hours and not uh, encounter another soul. And I keep thinking about what it's like when you choose a home in a city, you rely so much more on public spaces. You know, you don't have a place to hang out at home because you hang out in public in that very social way. And uh, and I'm just feeling, you know, uh, great sympathy for people who are stuck, particularly with small kids who need, you know, to be outside and uh, and to explain to a small kid why you can't run up to your friend. You know, it's hard enough to get people not to pat your dog. <laughs> so, no, I feel it, immense, immense uh immense sympathy that also is why it, it's so striking to me that people who've got it as good as we do are, are letting their fear master them and otherize people who need our help now geraldine brooks is the author of year of wonders and other books i just love um after you read that one read march if you have not gotten a chance to do that um, or The Secret Chord, or Caleb's Crossing, or People of the Book. Geraldine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed gabbing. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are having a, a virtual happy hour, or perhaps a real happy hour, with not with your underage children, I hope, Emily Bazelon, but with your overage spouse, what will you be chattering about? You're against parents allowing teenagers to drink a few sips of wine, I'm, David. I'm Cox. actually strongly so no, I strongly support it. Do your children drink a few sips of wine? You don't need to answer. Um, one of my children last night was on The Ringer, the website The Ringer, because they were having what seemed like an excellent coronavirus competition. Which TV characters are the best? They had lined it up as if it were March Madness with 64 entrants to start with, and they were in the round of 16, and so we had an excellent debate. Omar versus Larry David's character and Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's, what kind of debate is that? That's a that's a I that's a Omar gimme. That's a sixteen-one. Who that? lost? I think Omar might have lost. That is, which is insane. That's insane, right? Well, wait a minute. Best rel- best like to have in a fight against the zombies, okay, or best wait, to have sorry. dinner with. Or? Okay, it's the best TV character of the twenty-first century. That, that's that's the, ludicrous. Um, the Larry David character would not be in. Would not make the top sixty. He would not make the 68. He wouldn't even get in the, the four they'd let in to, to compete for those last spots. That's a ridiculous. I don't know what to that's tell a ridiculous you. I contest. also noticed that only three of the 16 contenders were women, which troubled me. Or maybe it was like four. But it was a small percentage, which then led to a heated discussion about whether that was because the women just didn't have good characters to play or whether, as I believe, something else was going on. Was it Carmela, one of them? Like, Selena Myers wasn't there anymore from Veep, which seemed insane. Although Amy Poehler was running strong, along with Cersei and Arya Stark, and maybe one other person. Anyway, I really recommend this. I mean, by the time our listeners hear the um, segment, it will be in some later round, but it was a very entertaining discussion. I'm looking it up now because I'm so enraged. John, what is your chatter? My uh, chatter is also a, a visual, well, is a, a watching TV chatter, which is we um, watched um, the 1996 version of Hamlet, the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet, um, with our uh, teenagers. And there were two things that are important. One is that what teenagers know, which is really smart about watching Hamlet, 
is it watch it with the subtitles on, which is fantastic. And I wish I could do that when I see Shakespeare in the theater. Um, the second thing is it's really long. So you, you should just start in the middle, which makes it uh, more enjoyable because by the time it really catches its stride, you, you, you've really you've got fatigue from having to watch the first part of the play. The second part is the, this, which is the scene between Derek Jacoby, who is playing Claudius um, and Laertes, where they're plotting how they're going to, um, spoiler, spoiler alert, kill Hamlet. Derek Jacoby does what so few Shakespeare actors do, which is he makes this complicated language and seem like he's just talking at a cafe in the afternoon. It is amazing. He's so good at just effortlessly, you can't tell he's acting. This is not true of all people who play Shakespeare, who sometimes feel like they're shouting to a foreigner through a bad cell phone. And they just massively overact, and you want to just give them a cold compress and 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 a cup of tea and and calm them down. And so this just that one scene, if you want to watch somebody who is really good at playing Shakespeare, I would recommend that. Can I just say I have watched so few Shakespeare films in my life. I love that Hamlet. It's like seven hours long. I remember going to see it in Berkeley in 1996, I think with like a long intermission for lunch or dinner or something in the middle. And it has Kenneth Branagh in it and Julie Christie. It's just so wonderful. I'm so glad that you uh, helped everyone to rediscover it. Yeah. And, 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 and the subtitles really help. Uh, update, Elite Eight, there's only one woman left, but Omar did beat Larry David, thank God. Oh, phew, there's, Simon's going to be really relieved to hear that. some justice in the world. Exactly. My chatter, uh, I guess we're all chattering the the visual. I, my new addiction in lockdown is the Bon Appetit Gourmet Makes YouTube channel. So Gourmet Makes is a woman named Claire Saffetz, who's a brilliant cook, brilliant chef, who sets herself the task each episode to try to recreate some popular food, a, a Cheeto, a Krispy Kreme donut, uh, an instant ramen, always a trashy food, but to recreate it so it looks and seems like the thing that you buy in the processed in the store, but is probably more delicious. It is so delightful. She's so charming. It's such an incredibly wonderful, fun way to spend 30 minutes. And she's also brilliant as you watch her figure out how these things work. So Gourmet makes on uh, from Bon Appetit with Claire Saffitz. Listeners, you also have sent us great chatters. Thank you. You can tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. We really appreciate it. You're sending us things which are diversionary, interesting, challenging. And I wish I could share all of them with our listeners. But I will only share one today, which I think may be the greatest listener chatter that's ever been sent to us. And it's courtesy of at Harlem Cavalier. And Emily, it's a neighbor of yours. It's about a neighbor of yours or four neighbors of yours who have created an Instagram account called COVID Classics over the last few days. And what they are doing is just in their, in their lockdown, in their quarantine, they are recreating famous paintings as photographs in their home. And so they have done American Gothic. Actually, they went into the yard to do American Gothic. They've done Van Gogh with his ear cut off. They've done Whistler's Mother. They've done Girl with a Pe- Girl with Pearl, the Pearl earring. earring. It is fantastic. <laughs> it is so charming and wonderful. I strongly recommend you 
check out the COVID Classics Instagram account. I don't have any. I follow nobody on Instagram. I followed this. I literally don't follow. I follow maybe two things on Instagram, and I've now added this as a third. It's so, so good. It is really just amazing. And in the American Gothic one, I recognize the house that's standing behind them, which I was so happy about. Yeah, they live literally <laughs> in your neighborhood, right? Yeah, they do. If you enjoy the GabFest, please subscribe to the show. You'll get new episodes the minute, the second they are published. And we would appreciate you being a regular listener of the show. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank from her bunker in the Midwest. Well produced, as usual, Jocelyn. And our researcher is Bridget Dunlap from her bunker in the Midwest. Thank you, Bridget. We engineered ourselves. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate podcast june thomas is the managing producer of slate podcasts for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz thank you for listening please stay safe and healthy and we want to talk to you again next week and we will talk to you again next week that wasn't like volitional we actually will do it so talk to you then hello slate plus how are you bit bad time but i hope i hope uh you're you and your family are doing okay. We, this is another like plots just came up with something. Emily thinks that we did this topic two weeks ago. Which, which, <laughs> but it's okay because everything is the same in coronavirus time. <laughs> everything just circles back on itself. It is. It's time is a flat circle. I feel like I'm in an episode of True Detective. It is this quality. I don't know what day. I actually, I, the only reason I know what day it is is that I know we taped the GabFest on Thursday. Otherwise, I would have no idea. Days, time. Not sure what time it is in the day. Could be morning, could be evening. Anyway, so the topic is shutdown hacks. What are the things that we're doing to make life more bearable, to build connection, to just get through the day, get through these long and strange days uh, with as much delight as we can manage uh, given the very difficult circumstances? So uh, who wants to go first? John, you, you are a man who has a million hacks for everything. It's true. It's true. And, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about actually writing about this for a couple of different white reasons. Um, the first thing is I'll just give you the, the, the short answer, which is actually talking to um, clinical psychologists about how to get through this individually and also as a culture. The list is pretty simple about what you're supposed to do. First of all, fight against that feeling that you talked about, David. The routine and rootedness in the day is um, is important because it, I mean, probably not for you because you have your own uh, packages of propulsion, but for a lot of us, we're propelled by the routine of our normal day and it gives us then propulsion towards the things that give us meaning, whether it's work or relationships or whatever. If you lose your structure, then you can kind of fishtail around, uh, which not only means you're not productive, if you're out of a job, what does productive productivity mean? But um, it means you lack that routine and therefore you lack propulsion, which means you're not in touch with meaning. So you need to find some kind of routine for the purposes of a routine and that keeps you um, stable. The other stuff that's simple, which everybody knows, is um, exercise, uh, connection, and staying off of social media, which as my friend David Onik pointed out, those, that's all the stuff you're supposed to do, even when you're not in a situation like the one we're in, which is... That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash Plus to become a member today. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.